Look ahead. Imagine more. Gain insight for your industry with forward-thinking advice from the professionals at Cone Resnick. Is your business ready to break through? Find out more at ConeResnick.com slash breakthrough. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, we have a special and unusual guest. His name is Ross Buckmuller. He's the founder and CEO of the Pure Group of Insurance Companies. I don't usually think about insurance companies, and I certainly hadn't gone out and said, hey, let's find someone from the insurance industry. I don't get a lot of PR pitches that I'm remotely interested in, but when a, a, a someone had contacted me and said, hey, are you interested in speaking with the founder of Pure? I said, hey, that's my insurance company. person was, really? Uh, no one ever really heard of us in the media. Well, I did. I, I heard of you because I was unhappy with one of your competitors, and my brother, who's an insurance agent, recommended uh, I look at this company, and, and I thought they were really interesting, terrific, and, and competitive. So I, I had coffee with the the founder. His name is Ross. Uh, talked to them about who they were, how they came about, and I, I thought it was really a surprisingly fascinating tale, certainly much more fascinating than we typically expect from the world of insurance. So we discussed uh, how he... Uh, came up with the concept, uh, why he left AIG Financial uh, in order to to launch this insurance company. And really, they've been an extremely successful entity, much faster growth than the rest of the insurance industry. They're over $650 million in, in premiums, and they're growing 40% a year. That That's a pretty astonishing number. So with no further ado, here is my conversation with Ross Buckmuller of Pure Insurance. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is a gentleman you may not be aware of, but you should be. His name is Ross Buckmuller, and he is the founder of the Pure Insurance Group of Companies. Uh, he has a storied background in the insurance industry. Uh, he began his career at Chubb, where he spent more than a decade uh, working the fields before he moved to AIG, where he launched the AIG Private Client Group and built it into a billion-dollar business. Uh, he was president of the Private Client Group for more than six years. He has been recognized by Cranes New York in its annual 40 Under 40 feature, uh, looking at rising stars of New York, as well as being the winner of the 2014 Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award, Ross Buckmuller. Welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks, Barry. We don't really have a lot of people from the insurance industry in the studio, and I think a lot of people uh, don't really think about insurance until they, they need it, but you've been plowing those fields for a long time, and, and you identified a number of interesting anomalies, not not only an underserved niche in the insurance industry, but an underutilized corporate structure that, that made your companies more competitive. Uh, let, let's start with that underserved niche. How did you first identify the niche either at AIG or at Pure? Well, for starters, uh, the high net worth area, which is what we focus on serving successful families, is the only business I've been in. 
right out of college, I uh, got a job as an underwriter at Chubb in the personal insurance area. And uh, so on one level, discovering high net worth was, well, it's where I fell into. Um, but as time went on, um, you know, what we began to see, or I certainly did along with some colleagues who joined me at Pure, uh, were some some inefficiencies in the way that market had operated. E- even as we brought more competition to it, there was more chance for inefficiency. But um, really, it was this question of an alignment of interest. Um, you know, if you if you look back 10 or 15 years ago, there began a movement where um, both in the insurance world and, and particularly in the wealth management world, where alignment of interest, uh, the elimination of conflicts, uh, the improvement of transparency, they all became important, either forced by regulators who were saying you better behave better <laughs> uh, or demanded by consumers who said, I want to be treated with this sense of trust that I know you're going to behave well. And we were able to look at the natural conflicts between policyholders and shareholders and design a business that would uh, create this alignment. And, uh, and that's what we've done. So, so let's address that conflict. A lot of big insurance companies are publicly traded, which you are suggesting, and I think most of our listeners know, uh, have a fiduciary obligation to their shareholders. But as a mutual structure where the policyholders are technically the owners of the company, there is no such conflict. Is, is that a fair way to describe it? Well, I think in the simplest terms it is, but, but you know, it, 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 and, and our form uh, takes a bit of a hybrid structure. Um, we think it takes the best aspects of mutuality, um, a low cost of capital, because mm-hmm. our policyholders contribute to build up the strength of the company, um, and um, looks at some of the challenges that that mutuals have had, capital flexibility, the ability to compete with larger companies, and and an entrepreneurial environment. You know, maybe the best and most talented people want to work in a place where they feel like they can flourish, and sometimes the older mutual companies weren't seen as that. Because there weren't the same stock option grants and the same opportunity ex- for upside. Exactly, exactly. Um, and I think I and I think that that um, some of the great mutual companies were terrific stewards of the the capital and the risks that their policyholders presented to them, um, but perhaps weren't weren't run with some of the modern ideas of corporate culture and, and environment. So beyond the rewards. Um, you know, the environment might not have been as dynamic. So in any event, we, we looked at this and, and, and said, if we could create um, a business that really embraced mutuality, transparency, the alignment of interest, the elimination of conflicts, a lower cost of capital, uh, a focus on the policyholders, do it in a way that it was entrepreneurial, boy, we thought we'd have something uh, terrific. And, and that's what we've done. But some of these conflicts are not sinister. They're simple, right? That, that shareholders want premiums to be higher, and policyholders want them to be lower. Sure. You know, so. so as a mutual, how much lower are your premiums relative to the to the big players in your space? Well, so, so I think the reciprocal structure probably gives us a 10 to 15% advantage uh, in part because, you know, insurance companies need to cover the cost of the claims and the cost of your expenses, but also the cost of capital. Um, and when your capital is free, contributed by policyholders year after year, that certainly reduces the burden to the need to return. The, the, the other part, though, that I think is just as important is when you start a company from scratch and you have this idea of what you want to do, we, were, we have been able to select our, our members, our policyholders, carefully. So if you only insure those people who are 
more responsible, who are less likely to make claims, um, who appreciate what you're offering, um, you can do it at a lower cost. So I'd say on average, our members report savings north of 20%. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Ross Buckmuller. He is the founder of Pure Group of Insurance Companies. Previously, he was the creator of the AIG Private Client Group. Let, let's talk a little bit about that. You're working as a youngster at Chubb. You're there for a dozen years. Uh, how did AIG come a knocking? Well, I was, so I was in London um, uh, building out a, a UK high net worth uh, practice and, and, and a few other things. And um, you know, the first thing that happened was is we were hosting our chairman uh, at the time um, and two companies in the United States, uh, Continental and CNA, had merged. Mm -hmm. And they both had a consumer business. And um, we were hosting our chairman for a dinner with some uh, European executives, and they, uh, they said to him, so I see this merger, what is this going to mean? And, and he uh, reflected and said, we've never had competition and we never will. And boy, I was sitting at the dinner saying, I'd like to compete against a company that doesn't think they'll ever have competition. <laughs> um, and about 60 days later, I got a call from AIG saying they're exploring getting into the business and when I'd be willing to have a conversation. And so... Um, you know, I flew over uh, from from London at the time, and and uh, um, you know, had breakfast with Evan, had lunch with Hank, and met everybody in between. And that would be Hank Greenberg and Evan. Evan Greenberg as well. Yeah, mm -hmm. sorry. So at the time, who who were you know running the company, and and um, uh, you know, I'll never forget. You know, at the time, I was thirty four years old. Um, Hank was seventy four as the chairman. Spring and, chicken. And uh, and he turned to me and he said, "You better take this job because you're getting too old." <laughs> At 34. Well, and his point was a good one. You know, I had just been married for a couple of years. You know, today we have two kids. We, we were expecting our first child. And, and his point of view was that, that you know, you're not going to be able to take risks or you may not be willing to take risks, you know, real soon when your Mortgage, life- Mortgage, college, et cetera. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, for 12 years at Chubb, I'm being told, you know, calm down, young man, your day will come. And here's this guy telling me Go for that it. I better take it now because I'm going to start losing my, my courage to, to take risk. And so um, it was, the, it was uh, an absolute great decision and I, and I loved every minute of it. How, how hands-on was Hank Greenberg at 74 at, at AIG? Oh, you know, he, he was, he was hands-on in that he was there to help you at any, at every turn. You know, um, in my case, you know, he had a, I think we still used Rolodexes back then, sure. but he had a great one. And, and, uh, if you're getting into the high net worth business and you have Hank, uh, you know, behind you, that's a great tailwind to, to meet a lot of people who could, who could help your business. And so he was helpful in that, but most importantly, he created a clear sense of accountability. It was your business. And so his help was there, his involvement was there, but let, let there be no doubt that, that good or bad, it was your business. And, and uh, you know, we got to about a half a billion dollars in the first few years when I was there before I left. And, and uh, you know, the business continues to perform well. I take pride, you know, 11 years after having left, it's still a good business, you know. So this was the pre-crisis days. This was in the early 2000s. When did you start at AIG? 99. All right, and you were there till oh, January of 06, we started Pure. All right, so you were almost seven years, and that was all right before everything hit the fan. What was AIG like in that period? Those were really as big as AIG ever got in that. Yeah. That, that region was just, they were tremendous then. 
So I, I just last week was was with a friend who now runs a big company and who was there at the time, and um, and we were having this reflection about the the good old days, as it were, and and um, I think the common theme was was winning. Mm-hmm. You just felt like you had such an edge, and there was such momentum built around um, winning. And I think everybody throughout the organization. Um, you know, em- embrace that idea that 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 we were and could do great things and 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 win and and people took great pride in 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 winning and so I think that was the first notable thing. I mean, I I was uh, I was long gone by by the 2008 issues, but um, you know that was a really important part of the culture. There was winning. When you say winning, were there RFPs? Were there proposals that you were competing against some other companies? Yeah. Uh, like, and what? How often did it feel like AIG was? If it's between you and who was the next closest competitor back then? Well, again, I think that in the insurance industry, my recollection, and now we're going back a bit, but the market capitalization of AIG was bigger than the cumulative market capitalization of just about all other publicly traded insurers. So it it was it, it was dwarfed it. everybody, you right. know. I mean, it was a two hundred billion dollar market cap back. You know, I want to say sixty five thousand people, something like that. Yeah, maybe even more than that. So so winning was the existing businesses were getting stronger all the time. New businesses like mine were entering and making an impact. They were acquiring Sun America, American General, um, you know, and there was a certain sense of of confidence and purpose, um, you know, and and pride. Um, you know, and it was it was a great deal of fun, and and boy, did I learn a lot. Mm. So, when when you left, oh, the, so you left in 06, I assume after that period of time, you had a nice fat slug of stock, and you got to liquidate it all before everything hit the fan. <clears throat> right? Uh, wouldn't that be good if we could have done that? <laughs> but you know, listen, I mean, I, I I I guess I'll put that out as I was loyal to the company, and I believed in the company, even though you know I set up a different business, but I. I did hold uh, uh, probably a little more than I should. <laughs> to, to say the least, although AIG has certainly recovered. At the time of the crisis, uh, I would have bet $100 million that they would never repay $66 billion yeah. in, in aid. But apparently, they just about have. There's some tax waivers that probably gives them a little wriggle room, but they more or less repaid the vast majority of that, which is an astonishing accomplishment considering how much money was involved. Absolutely. So uh, looking looking at what you built at AIG, how similar or different is Pure relative to, to that model of servicing the high net worth uh, individual? Interestingly enough, it, it it's about as different as you could get. And so, for it to have the same guy build both companies and to look at it now, you know, but but I think it reflects uh, both AIG's strength and and what Pure's purpose is. At, at at the time, you know, we had the biggest balance sheet in the industry at AIG, right. and so for us to take on extraordinary risks for people who had art collections in the billions of dollars and to to extend limits to help people insure what might have seen uninsurable at the time, you know, that made sense. You start a business from scratch and you're now trying to operate a company where you're carefully selecting the most responsible people and pooling them together in the most efficient way. Um, very you know, different things. Very, very different things. And so the common, the expertise was common, but other than that, it was very different business. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Ross Buckmuller. He is the founder and CEO 
of pure group of insurance companies, uh, a, a specialty company servicing high net worth individuals. And, and let's talk a little bit about the rest of the industry and what what they get wrong. What does the insurance industry sort of miss the ball with? Yeah, well, again, I've I've been in the business for almost thirty years, and so I'm 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 a bit of a fan of the industry, and like to think that as a group we do more good than bad. But, but I don't mean what they do that's bad. What yeah. Do they, so you obviously spotted a yeah. niche because because Pure has has really blown up to be you're doing yeah. over half a billion yeah. dollars in no in- a- absolutely. So what I was going to say is 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 I think I think where um, where we see is you have two big issues. One is there still remains inefficiencies in this market. Um, you know, in, in in 1987, I joined a, a Chubb out of out of college. I went through an underwriting training program, and um, I came back to the New York branch where I was set to be an underwriting trainee. Um, and they introduced a product called Masterpiece. Um, and uh, at that time, Masterpiece was coming to New York. This was within a couple of uh, months of me joining the company. Um, and we looked at the first, uh, release of the product and it had a flaw that if you were to insure a New York city apartment mm-hmm. where you wanted to insure the fixtures and fittings or the, the marble floors or the mahogany walls, um, that they would sell a deductible from a hundred dollars all the way up to the highest deductibles of tens of thousands of dollars. And no matter what deductible you picked, the price was the same. Because they put the, the the deductible credit in the wrong place in the algorithm. I mean, a right. silly little mistake. So here I was, a 22-year-old trainee, and I wrote a memo saying, you know, this is this is wrong. And um, anyway, 2016, it's still the same. So and, if you're a Chubb insurance policyholder, call up and say, I want the lowest possible deductible, and your policy won't... Your, your for, for this additions and alterations coverage in, in, in apartments. But but I, I guess my point is it's such it's a very inefficient market. It, it, it there, there are lots of little quirks. All of them can be rationalized, um, but it's inefficient. A, and uh, so I think the, the inefficiencies, and there are many, and part of the, the charm of our business is this is all we do, and we have looked at these inefficiencies and found ways to make things work, whether that is the way jewelry insurance is overpriced. So and- let, let's talk about that because I would I know there's a tremendous amount of information asymmetry. It feels like as a customer, uh, people don't necessarily know what's going on with things like that. Talk to us about the uh, the jewelry riders and, and how it's typically done and how you approach it. Well, for, for, for starters, the, the coverage is, is, is typically restrained on their homeowner's policy. You, you, you can't make a claim for much jewelry. To buy a, a, a rider or a scheduled uh, personal property policy um, that is priced to make massive profits for the insurer, um, and in our case, we provide more cover in case you forgot to insure something, and the stuff that you intentionally want to insure, your more higher valued items, are at a much lower price. Uh, but but so part of this is is an inefficiency, but part of it also is designed for this this uh, rewarding shareholders. You know, the, the things that people do that everybody, even if you're not an insurance expert, just know are, 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 are wrong, um, you know, I think we've been able to identify and fix. Years ago, there was a mortgage company that said sort of, uh, you know, even kids know it's not uh, right to treat your new friends better than your old friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but insurance companies will still have new business writing companies where the premiums are lower if they've never met you and higher if you've been there for 10 years. Um, and so we just dealt with a lot of these issues where 
Products are built to be more generous, priced to be more efficient, and and principles put in place like treat your loyal customers better than you treat somebody you've never met. In other words, if you're an existing customer, no one is going to come in as a brand new customer and, and get charged a lower, exactly. lower, lower premium. So I was kind of surprised. We bought a house about 18 months ago. I got an appraisal um, for the mortgage, and then we got the insurance. And uh, lo and behold, two months after we closed, the insurance company sends us a note. Hey, we've reappraised your home, and it appraised for half a million dollars more than the original appraisal. And by the way, here's a bill for another four grand. I was astonished by it. Um, is, is that standard operating uh, procedure, or is that a, was that a one-off for me? No, you, you, you saw the experience the way it's probably designed to be seen, which is unfortunate, right? Mm -hmm. So here's one of the great challenges. If you're with a standard company, they, will, they may overlook real issues that would cost more to rebuild. And so when you eventually had a claim, they might not have noticed some of those features. So the challenge is, as trying to you know, underwrite properly, we want to get these values correct, but we can't make it feel like a bait and switch. Right. Right. And so, you know, and simply one of the things we've done is it said if the value goes up by more than 10%, the appraiser cannot make a, cannot issue the report. They have to make a phone call and go through line by line to make sure you agree with what we said. So you don't have that shock. Um, and, and there's lots of, of, of uh, practices where the industry has done it the way they've done it. They believe they are right. There is some goodness in it, uh, but it doesn't sit well with consumers. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Ross Buckmuller. He is the founder, president, chief executive officer at the Pure Group of Insurance Companies, you know, I was telling someone about today's show, and I, I described Pure, because uh, the answer is Pure. I'm not familiar with them. The My response to that was, well, think of them as the vanguard group of insurance. Uh, how accurate is that? Well, I, I think that for us, it's a flattering comparison. You know, when you look at Vanguard, one of the first things they say is, is that they're uniquely driven to do what's best for investors. And I think we share that value. Now, uh, we use independent brokers. They're much more of a direct-to-consumer. You know, we think we are very high touch. They're definitely low cost. So operating-wise, there's probably some differences. But um, I think we share the value that that let's focus on the customer and serve them uh, as the most important part of the equation. Costs matter. Transparency matters. Being on the same side of the table as the client matters. That that's what was motivating me to draw that comparison, and yeah. the, it, you're hard pressed to find someone else in the insurance industry that at least publicly emphasizes that aspect of what they do. Yeah, you know, I think that USAA has been an inspiration for us in many mm -hmm. ways. You know, they use the same reciprocal structure. Um, they are uh, laser focused on the service to their membership. Um, you know, and so in many ways, I think we view them as as someone to look up to. I would say we get most of our inspiration from the wealth management industry, where you have real evangelists who are out there um, trying to build businesses um, with out a focus on short term profits, but focused on this long term view. Of if I serve my clients well, I will prosper. In the meanwhile, I have no conflict, and I am just simply going to serve them well, and that gives us inspiration. So let's talk a little bit about underwriting revenue. How does that ebb and flow with the business cycle? How does that change over time? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be careful if the market 
were to become over-competitive and you simply thought you couldn't uh, underwrite to a, to a fair return, um, you know, the good news for us is we operate in such an uncompetitive world with two or three other companies. Um, and so we see less um, uh, competitive uh, cycles than, than you might see in a commercial insurance where there might be dozens and dozens of companies competing for the same type of business. So we also look, though, at, at economic cycles. Uh, you know, in 2008, we had a significant amount of business in Southwest Florida where the economy was hitting it hard, and we had to be careful that our membership, uh, you know, was was holding up and being resilient in those financial times. These days, we're looking at at uh, the, the the massive and frequent hailstorms in in the center and south of the of the country. And is that an anomaly? Is that unusual? Well, we're or? trying. Yeah, we're trying to find out what, whether it is the real uh, the the new normal or uh-huh. whether or not this is a cycle. Uh, but certainly, uh, the cost of replacing roofs uh, the last couple of years has has been more than we might have anticipated. So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, I was reading one of the things that you had written, uh, and in 2004 and 2005, we had a huge hurricane cycle, and this was right before you launched. How, how did that run of hurricanes, especially on the East Coast and most especially in Florida, how did that impact your ability to launch a company? Yeah, I'm sure it probably helped. You had, you had a couple of factors going on there. So one of them was is that in 04 and 05, where you had four hurricanes in, in 2004 make landfall in Florida, and then 2005, you not only had uh, Wilma and, and Rita, but you had Katrina, who, who you know obviously sure. did the damage in, in uh, the Gulf. Um, and, and, and so um, insurance companies naturally uh, backed off a bit. And we're trying to digest what just happened, what's likely to happen in the future. Um, and so clearly there was a bit of an opening there for us. But the real issue is this, is we were able to determine that very well-built homes, and in this case, the newest built homes, built mm-hmm. to the highest standards, were far more likely to withstand damage than a home that had been built decades before. Go, go into that. There was something I had read about the larger the distance from the four corners of the house, the more hurricane resistant the roof is or, or something like that? Well, I, you know, listen, I would just say size matters in this mm-hmm. case. And so um, for for both engineering reasons and just the common sense, these, these large homes held up very well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a terrific group, um, the Insurance Institute for Building uh, and Home Business and Home Safety, that is testing uh, damageability um, down in a, a facility in South Carolina. And we're learning more and more about what um, causes damage or what construction helps mitigate damage. The newest big homes were withstanding damage far better than um, than anything else. And yet, when you're building a new home in 2006 and seven, insurance companies were already kind of full up of what just hit, happened in 04 and 05. So our concept, not limited to Florida, was what if we pooled together the most responsible owners of the finest built homes and bring them together to create their own insurance company? And it just so happened that the owners of the finest built homes in Florida were being kept out because they were all new to the market coming in and people said, I'm full already. And so maybe a bit of serendipity and probably when you look at any business that has great success, they can look back at some little factor that said, boy, would have would this business have been as, as successful if the Florida market wasn't... Uh, Mm-hmm. uncompetitive for that period of time. But the real principle was select carefully and we can build a great business. There is a, a metaphor there for being willing to buy stocks when they've just gotten crushed in a crisis like 0809. 
you went into Florida right after a huge set of hurricanes and found most of your competitors had been scared away. That is a tremendous, uh, tremendous opportunity. Yeah. So let's talk about your growth rate that this opportunity has led to. You're now doing is am I reading the numbers right? Five hundred million in premiums. Yeah. So the, in 2016, we'll do about six hundred and fifty million. So we did about five hundred last year, mm -hmm. and and we'll continue to grow north and, of thirty percent. You're growing almost. Is it forty percent for seven consecutive years? Well, for more than that. So s since we started back, you know, 2007 was the first full year of writing business. We grew by forty percent every year, and and we grew forty percent last year. Um, now, you know, those numbers, to put in perspective, we're still, you know, about a $600 million business. We're in about a $15 billion niche mm -hmm. um, with only two other competitors, Chubb and AIG, really, who are who are uh, in this. So we have been, in many ways, slow and steady building up a business that still is undersized within the category. But 40% um, a year, that, that's an astonishing growth rate for, for a decade. Sure, and I'm sure if I went back to AIG, Mr. Greenberg would say, "So 600 million part of 15 billion, so you haven't been able to crack it." You know, <laughs> um, you know. Yeah, well, that that that's motivational. How long can you maintain a growth rate anywhere near 40 percent for? Yeah, I think for some time now. As I said, it's a 15 billion dollar. Gosh, our competitors have suggested it could be a 40 billion dollar market. Right, and it's a part of the economy that is showing growth. The, the, mm -hmm. the wealthiest uh, Americans. So we see plenty of upside. We don't we don't see any um, need to slow down. The issue for us is managing risk, managing culture, um, building scale. Uh, luckily, from the very beginning, we put in sort of scalable systems that would allow us to grow well into the future. Um, but that's the great challenge: continuing to find great people. We launched uh, forty-seven college graduates coming in for a training program, mm -hmm. you know, and and they will help us really more in twenty seventeen and twenty eighteen when they're maturing or they'll you know um we'll move on move on uh yeah it's interesting i mean 27 out of the 28 we hired last year uh, still are still with, with us that's the great. 2010 class the entire group is still with us so so we hope we can keep them so you're actively recruiting kids right out of college how do you find uh clients how does the high net worth homeowner come across pure as as an insurer yeah so we use a network of around 700 independent brokers they are fiercely independent. They work for their clients. Uh, they put their clients' best interests first. Uh, they do work with other companies, um, and um, and so if we don't serve them well, they can they can um, you know offer them someone else. But I will tell you that after fifty five thousand families have joined, um, it, it's it's really the existing members and their enthusiasm that will lead to the next fifty five thousand. So. Um, you know, we have we have principally a, a channel of independent brokers, and then we try to um, inspire the enthusiasm of our membership to 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 grow the next uh, next group. Well, full disclosure, I was with one of your competitors, not especially happy with them, especially after that big increase. And uh, actually, my kid brother referred me to you guys, and that's how Pure became my insurer. That's how I became aware of who who you were, and and when one of the people. Uh, in the media group for you contacted me. I'm like, oh, I know Pure Insurance. They're my insurer. They're like, really? Well, thank you, brother. <laughs> so, so let's talk a little more about about revenues and and reserves. How do you maintain that balance between pricing premiums so you generate sufficient um, flows that that your reserves are where you want them to be, and yet at the same time not overcharging or or staying as competitive as you can 
versus uh, the other premium costs that that your competitors charge. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a it's a great challenge, and I think it's also a challenge if you hire talented and experienced people who are accustomed to working in a stock company. Their mentality may be be different. So the first thing we did is is we established a set of principles that our actuarial and pricing team would use to make those decisions. One of them would be there are no new business writing companies, or in other words, the existing members will always pay less than than a new member, and and um, and that helps guide them. Um, but clearly, we have to manage this business professionally. You know that we have to make sure we charge uh, enough, and so we lay out. Um, these principles that guide them to seek an adequate rate, um, to try to be fair amongst the members so you don't have subsidization where some groups are not paying nearly enough and some groups are paying too too much. Thank you, Ross, for, for being so generous with your time and, and spending so much time with us. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting about all things insurance. Check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com or follow me on Twitter, at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Are you looking to take your business to the next level? The accounting, tax, and advisory professionals from Cone Resnick can guide you. Cone Resnick delivers industry expertise and forward-thinking perspective that can help turn business possibilities into business opportunities. Look ahead, gain insight, imagine more. Is your business ready to break through? Learn more at ConeResnick.com slash breakthrough. Cone Resnick, accounting, tax, advisory. Welcome to the podcast. Um, Ross, thank you so much for doing this. This is really fascinating. There's, there's so much stuff we didn't get to that I want to talk about. Um, perhaps most pressing, artwork. How do you ensure artwork? It's one thing to assess the value of a Picasso, because there was a recent auction. How do you uh, put a value on any of the artwork that uh, a high net worth uh, household might have, whether it's original sculptures or paintings or what have you? Well, valuation is an important part of it. And so we have a team of experts who have experience in valuations, and then they use a network to make sure that we have the right valuations. But it's only part of it. Um, you know, So for example... Um, a, uh, a massive hailstorm in St. Louis uh, just hit um, a wonderful sculpture that was in the backyard uh, of somebody's uh, house, knocking the, the toes off of a cherub. And, and, uh, um, and so you have to look at damageability. And, and, um, and so uh, from an underwriter's perspective, that's not only looking at the risks of outdoor sculptures, but understanding transit risk of pieces that are on loan or pieces that are moving from house to house. Because uh, honestly, the, the exposure inside of a house installed properly on a wall, um, you know, isn't, isn't that great. Once it starts moving, boy, sure. boy, that's there. So, so understanding value and then understanding exposure. And we've got a group of people who have done this for a long time and, and uh, that allows us to be pretty good at it. Now, I understand you have some interesting artwork in the lobby of your offices. How, how did that come about? Well, um, it's interesting is, is uh, a, a member, um, a very prominent family here in New York, um, had a glass sculpture um, cut from one piece of glass by a, uh, a, a, a Czechoslovakian artist who um, uh, had built these beautiful glass uh, pieces, and they discovered a, a tiny crack in it. 
um, but it be, it became um, of no value. So we we paid the claim in full, and there was no salvage value that anybody wanted. And our claim department were trying to figure out what to do with this massive piece of glass. And we thought if it was installed in the um, reception of our headquarters, it would be a reminder for everybody of why we're in business. And um, we did that. And then all of a sudden, claims people from around the country started saying, well, really, this uh, you know, uh, paper was stuck to a painting and it pulled off the, 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 uh, the treatment of the oil and um, it, it can't be repaired. Um, and that became installed. And then a, a, uh, a print from uh, Dolly was, um, was damaged uh, in, a, in, a, in storage beyond repair. And with all its mud stains, it is on our walls. And then a 12th century Chinese plate was cracked and then reassembled. And so when we've had art that has been insured and it has no value uh, in salvage, we install it throughout our offices as a reminder for why we're in business to help people pursue their passions of collecting art. The the gallery of damaged artwork. That, yeah. <laughs> that's that's pretty funny. Let let's talk. I I meant to ask you before and I didn't get to it about um, one of your capital partners. So XL Capital uh, was this when you launched or at a later date picked up about ten percent of the company. Is that right? Yeah, just just in December and and. Um, you know, to, to to back up, we've had the same partner from the beginning. You know, so Stone Point Capital, in two thousand five, uh, right before before it left, we agreed to um, to build this business together. Um, and, and you know, to think about it, we're in the eleventh year with the same private equity sponsor, and um, pretty impressive. It, they are just they've been a phenomenal partner. No, and nobody pressing you to go public or anything along those lines. No, that, I, that's I, unusual I, for private equity. They're normally looking for some sort of an exit. Yeah, no, and I and and so I think that in a in a fairly complicated transaction, uh, we did a recapitalization of the holding company. Uh, so we have a for-profit company that manages the policyholder-owned exchange, and that's where the investors um, see their returns. Um, and so in a very complicated transaction, they brought in KKR to take a a minority position, and we had received over twenty unsolicited unsolicited inquiries from insurance companies who wanted to be in a specialist market, liked our model, liked the predictable fee income and the customer-centric um, reciprocal. And, um, you know, I, I have to say that that, that XL, um, they were terrific. Uh, Mike McGavick, who's the CEO, has been a, a good friend throughout this process. And I think that that the biggest thing we get is, is for me, is I get to talk to Mike probably once a quarter about about culture and challenges and leadership and and he's been terrific and and uh, um, but the other side of it is in addition to buying a, a you know a single digit equity percentage um, they made a very generous commitment to provide additional capital uh, as we need it a defined amount but it can be called upon in a contingent capital so you know if there was a either an opportunity for greater growth or a crisis where we had to replenish. Uh, XL has given us this capital flexibility that's you know absolutely terrific for us. That that sounds like that's a uh, a good sort of partner um, to have. So I've I've covered a ton of stuff. There's a handful of questions uh, I wanted to ask that that we skipped over or ran out of time earlier. Um, I would be remiss if I did not ask. Uh, how are are your capital reserves invested? How, that float that the insurance company has as their reserves, how do you uh, deal with that on a day-to-day or, or year-to-year basis? 
Obviously, it has to be somewhat liquid in case there's a, a need for it. It's not going into gated funds. On the other hand, the shortest-term treasuries are yielding nothing. How do you deal with that? Well, you know, I think we made the decision that that um, short duration, high quality, um, despite the modest mm-hmm. yields, negligible yields, was the right thing. We had enough risk in our business with hurricanes and earthquakes and hailstorms um, that we wouldn't take enormous amount of investment risk. So it's been tough these years to generate uh, meaningful yield, and um, but we we like our position. We've got lots of uh, liquidity, lots of flexibility, but but uh, surely not as much uh, yield as we'd like. So it, uh, speaking of that, these low rates, what what do these really low Fed induced zero interest rate policy? What are we one seven something on the ten year these days? Uh, and if you're looking shorter term, it's practically nothing. What do low rates mean to the insurance industry in general that normally are dealing with this massive float that used to be a source of profit for them? Well, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, if 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 you're trying to return on capital, you need to get investment returns or underwriting returns. If the investments aren't there and you need more underwriting returns, that requires you to, to raise prices. So having a lower cost of capital, this is a good time to, to, to be able to take advantage of that to some degree. But we buy a lot of reinsurance from people who need to see a fair amount of return. So um, lower, lower interest rates naturally would lead to higher prices, and probably competition keeps it from being too much higher. That's interesting. Uh, you don't really hear people talking about some of the secondary impacts of low interest rates, but insurance prices may actually be higher than they otherwise would. That that's kind of uh, kind of appealing. Um, let's talk a little bit about analytics. We we referenced this during the broadcast portion. What what sort of analytics do you run? How significant is that to what you do? Uh, would you be consider yourself a big data sort of company? Yes, I think we would. I think I think you have to be to be successful in the insurance business these days. I mean. Um, so, so from our perspective, uh, and we've just actually made an investment outside of our actuarial area in a, in a chief data scientist, um, and she has built a team up that, that looks at stuff beyond the products. So, so on the underwriting and actuarial side, we, we do analytics to understand the people we insure and their behavior and the responsibilities and the risks we take, like the likelihood of uh, a hailstorm or what type of roof is more likely to, to cause significant damage. But the analytics really are applying to all aspects of our business, the performance of individuals, recruiting college kids and the likelihood that they're going to succeed, uh, the effectiveness of direct mail campaigns to, uh, to how do we make sure we don't uh, upset too many people when we appraise your house, um, using third-party data that's available so that instead of a bait and switch, if we could have alerted you ahead of time that said it looks like you're underinsured, that might have reduced the shock of you know, seeing that. And so um, in any event, we I don't think there's any part of the business where analytics aren't uh, being used. Let's talk a little bit about real estate because I've been watching, I'm a real estate junkie to some degree. It's, it's an area I followed for a long time and parts of the country are just on fire. This, this past weekend in the New York Times was an article about, so a lot of people have kind of moved away from Manhattan into Brooklyn in this area and they're they're in a one or a two bedroom but the cost difference from a two bedroom in Brooklyn to a three bedroom is an order of magnitude jump and so the article in the Times was about a family my, my friend Jonathan Miller always quoted in the Times appraisal 
uh, discussions. A family is looking for a house, and it was somewhere in lower uh, Westchester, either like Scarsdale or New Rochelle or something like that. And the house was listed for, I want to say, eight and change. And they see the house the first day. They make an offer for the full listing price. And the sellers say, thanks, we'll get back to you. What do you mean you'll get back to us? That's your ask. Oh, we want to see what happens. The family comes back and makes it. Maybe it was 800000 They offered full ask. And they come back at eight fifty or eight sixty seven. Say, we want this house, eight sixty seven. We appreciate it, but we have another open house next weekend. The family comes back a third and fourth time. Ultimately, the house went for like a million and <laughs> sixty-seven. And the agent, the real estate agent, said, "We're seeing more and more of this because there's so little inventory, especially of quality homes like that." What are you guys seeing when you're looking at the entire country and and primarily high net worth uh, homes, the the upper end of the scale? What's happening in real estate these days? Well, Barry, I'd also I'd be remiss if I didn't stop you first and say that you don't tell an insurance guy that the country is on fire because when we look at California, <laughs> yes. we, we have we have seen that. So, so um, figuratively, not literally. Yes. On fire. Well, well, unfortunately, the real estate market is hot. Is that better? yes? And <laughs> and literally, California is on fire right, right. now. So, so this is a set. So do you, you have a decent number of clients out. We've in just started in California in the last two years, and so uh, we're we're terrible time. We're, we're very we're monitoring very carefully, and we're mm-hmm. looking out for. So, um, what I, what I do think on this on this question, um, you know, th- that that description you had of that, um, you know, the the million dollar sale for an eight hundred thousand dollar listing. I mean, we do see we tend to play a little bit higher up. The, so the the, mm-hmm. a, the the average or the the entry level for our programs are a million dollars of replacement cost, mm-hmm. which on a market value could be considerably h- higher than than that. Right, because all you're replacing is the the actual structure, it, it, not the real it, estate. It, exactly, and but but the challenge is is that sometimes if it's a historic home that costs that costs even more because you're actually promising to replace all the unique features, mm-hmm. or they may not have a, a, a market value. So, so while there's a limited supply and a great demand for homes at a certain point in time, there's also that that argument going on right now in Manhattan about whether the, there's too much supply on the ultra high end side of that, and they're not moving as much. Um, well, we had a run of of prices that were almost there. Yeah, I have a hundred million dollars. I don't care what I pay. Let's do, what apartment is worth truly worth a hundred million dollars, and now it seems to kind of. Be reverting as as yeah. hot as the let's call it one to ten million range has been, uh, the the ten to a hundred million or maybe it's the thirty to a hundred million seems to have cooled off. Yeah, what I would say though is from our perspective is is the, these are largely high quality problems. It creates more opportunities for us. These are folks who are feeling good and and wanting to insure properly. Um, the challenge is is if you go back to 08 when it moved in the other direction at a point in time where uh, the home would have been worth more to them if if it burned down. Right. That 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 um, trying to convince somebody to insure a home for its cost to rebuild when they could buy their neighbors for half the price. Um, you know, I think the the challenges of of real estate movement are so much tougher for insurers on the downward cycle than they are on the on on a steady or or upward cycle. So. We're watching it. We're seeing opportunities, um, but we don't get a lot of anxiety about the current market. Outside of places like Las Vegas and Southern Florida, uh, there was a brief window where, hey, your neighbor's house is now half of what your house is. But we've seen a lot of uh, recovery across uh, 
all but the worst areas in the country. Yeah. I don't want to say everywhere, but you know the the people have described the sand states as as problematic. Florida, Arizona, La, uh, Nevada, and then the eastern parts of of California, where the exurbs, where prices had just gone, you know, lost any correlation to reality. But outside of areas like that, it seems like a lot of of real estate has recovered. Do you still run into those sort of problems? Hey, I have to convince you to insure the full value of the home, even though the neighbor's house is considerably cheaper? Yeah, less and less. And as I say, that it's usually the extremely unique uh, construction, either historic or somebody put an enormous amount of money into it. They know they'll never get the money back. And we need to be able, to, but we have to promise to rebuild that house the the way it is. What I would say is is is, is that we have responded to a movement on on the uh, dramatic increase in new construction for luxury homes. So there's been been a significant double digit increase year after year since since we hit the bottom mm-hmm. for um, new home starts and. The fastest growing new home start area is 4,000 square foot and above. Uh, That's a substantial custom, size house. Custom built home. Exactly. So, so um, we started a new product that launched, launched in Texas a couple months ago, um, geared to helping people um, design a home that's more likely to be resilient and mitigate against loss um, with engineering services right there when you're sitting down with your architect and then ensuring you all the way through the construction project. And then once you're done, put it onto a standard homeowner's policy. And so that would be a reaction to looking at this market and saying, one, there's a demographic movement. And the second thing, back to what we talked about earlier, if your purpose is to help people pursue their passions with greater confidence, when they want to build a dream home, we should be there. And, and so we ended up trying to build out what it would take to help people through this construction uh, project. And so far, so good. That, that's really interesting. Uh, I have a, um, a a little runabout I keep uh, on the Long Island Sound. Uh, not, nothing outrageous, but when I'm out on the water with my phone and the Zillow app, I could look at the various prices of what, what's been sold, what's for sale. Uh, the, the boat went in the water a little late. It was a very cold spring, but I noticed an amazing number of new constructions yeah. right waterfront. So if someone is doing something like that, uh, let's say either Sands Point or where have it doesn't matter. You guys are, are national, yeah. right? Every state but yeah. one, is yeah, that correct. right? Yep. Um, that that might be worth talking about. Also, I looked at the map. Idaho? Why not? Yeah. Why not Idaho? But um, uh, I wondered what happens when someone is building a home. How is that insured normally? And are, do you guys do something different? Yeah, so so there are uh, specialists who um, develop what's called either a, a builder's risk or a home insured under the course of construction. A- and um, you know, there are different types of, of risks, and, and it can be a risky proposition. You know, at the point in time where um, people are doing work and it's unoccupied at night and um, even all the way to the end when they're varnishing the floors, there, there are... Uh, periods of greater risk than you might find otherwise. So traditionally, insurance companies have stayed out of that business and let the construction experts do it. And then when they're done, we would we would take the policies. The, the, the problem is, is it doesn't always work that tidy. Number one, there isn't a lot of service. So when they build a house mm-hmm. and you get out there later and say, you know, you really should have put these windows in to reduce the likelihood of windstorm. You really should have put these tiles on to reduce the likelihood of hail, hail damage. You should have insulated in this way. You should have put a shower pan in this way. 
they would have you should have put the simple these these nuts uh, on in a way that will uh, be less likely to corrode and less likely to create water damage. The value we can provide when you're sitting down with the architect right at that point in time is far greater. And so we felt like it was important to lean in and try to help. Um, the other part of it is is that insurance policies tend to be twelve month policies. Mm-hmm. Construction products, uh, construction processes don't work that neatly. And so sometimes with a 13-month project, you've got to pay 24 months of insurance because they're fully earned for the annual period. Right. Um, and so we thought we could design a product that would be better, and uh, we could certainly add a lot more value. And then um, and then once we're done, back to kind of one of the points we talked about earlier, uh, the people who build these homes that are brand new, those homes are much better equipped to, to withstand whatever loss might be coming its way. Um, by and large, and uh, and so we have uh, adding new members who have homes that are extremely insurable because they've been built to the most contemporary standards. So I again, we'll we'll stick with the water theme. I look at a lot of these houses that are built waterfront. We had looked at one house that was on a cliff. Only the cliff was eroding. It scared the bejesus out of my wife. That never happened. I really love the view. It was on a point. Um, and we looked at other houses. We ended up not going waterfront, but I'm still enamored with that. And I'm astonished that I sometimes see new construction pretty much, I don't know, let's call it two, three feet above sea level. And I'm surprised given all, you're, you mentioned the change in weather, possibly with hailstones. How does an insurance company deal with the possibility of sea levels rising a couple of feet over the next couple of decades? Well, well, certainly. I mean, I think that that we, we use uh, catastrophe models to try to understand the likelihood of losses and and try to deconstruct them to understand what their assumptions are, including about uh, water temperatures and and sea levels. Um, and, and I think we create standards by which we expect uh, to only insure homes that are properly elevated. Um, and- Meaning, something at sea level is not going to be ripe uh, for for you as a client. Yeah, I think I think exactly, but I think what will end up happening is is at each individual uh, location there are mapping techniques to determine what elevation you should have. I mean, you know, the the common things which we've seen over the years is someone built a home up uh, sufficiently elevated and um, the first floor living area might be 15 feet above um, the ground and it's it's ample and High it's and dry. Great. Absolutely. And underneath, there's some um, open area, um, ideally even vented, so floodwaters could would Come flow in right through. Yeah. And there will be people who look at that and say, that would make a great media room. You know? <laughs> and, and, and so now you've or, got- Or not. <laughs> right. And, 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 and so trying to be there to give the right advice to sort of say, you know, not only is that not a great idea, but you've really changed the insurability of that home once you have living area well below the necessary elevation. And so, we, you know, if, if we're not there at the right time to stop them from, from doing that, we can't help. Um, but we try to select carefully. We try to advise as much as we can. Uh, make sure that we, we, you know, listen, if you want to insure wealthy families and then tell them, by the way, you can't live near the water, you know, You're it's, in yeah, exactly. So, so you <laughs> although we figure- did, we did see a lot during Sandy, there were a lot of buildings that had put their emergency generators in the basement and they got flooded and they thought they had an electrical backup. They didn't. So there is something to be said for saying, Hey, you don't, if you're in a flood zone, the basement is not where you want something that is either valuable or, or crucial. 
Sure. And so in, in every major market, we've got risk managers who are expert in that market. We've got um, people who in the Northeast, they, boy, do they understand nowadays ice damming and snow on roofs and burst mm-hmm. pipes and everything we've gone through. And in Florida, they understand how to make sure that every opening is protected so that you know the, the windstorms don't damage the house and lift the roof off and, and, and everything there. And they try to provide as much advice as, uh, as they can. Um, and, and not only that, I think that this is where we've differentiated ourselves, is that insurance companies would make a, a pattern of saying, you know, Barry, you should do this. Here's a piece of advice for you. Between you and me, bud. But, but you're busy. Or you're not, you know, if I told you that you should put a lightning suppression system in, you think you'd know how many lightning rods were needed no. or how it would do it, right? And so what we ended up des- developing are these group we call member advocates. I think there'll be as many as 50 by the end of this week. Um, a- and they would take the advice and say, right, this is how many, you know, lightning uh, suppression, uh, lightning rods you need, or this is, this is the right water shutoff valve you need, or this is the right solution. This is how much it costs. This is the vendor that we think is best. Here's a work order. I can get it done for you. The fulfillment of advice for wealthy families has proven to be as valuable as the advice itself because, you know, they're busy and they're not experts. And if you can go and get it done for them, um, that makes a huge difference. Everybody is time constrained. And I have a flat roof. I'd love some advice as what the heck is supposed to be replaced it's an 83. I know that there's new roof technologies. Let, let, let's look into that and find, <laughs> you, you uh, f- find something about that. So I know I only have you for a finite amount of time, um, and I want to get to my favorite questions. Before I do, I have one last question. So you mentioned mailers, uh, but typically, how, how do you find the clients, or how do the clients find you? We, we addressed this briefly but I know there's there's more there. Given that fifteen to maybe forty billion dollar addressable market, uh, we we see ads all the time uh, on TV for the mainstream um, insurers. Geico has been running nonstop ads for it seems like twenty years. What what can the high end insurer do to find and attract the right clients? Yeah. So I think that the um there are two, two sort of insights that have come from both research and, to some degree, common sense. One of them is, is that wealthy families rely on the advice of, of trusted advisors. And so to the extent that we have relationships with uh, family offices or, or wealth mm-hmm. managers, um, that's helpful. Uh, but far more, they rely on the advice of friends and family, like your brother. And, and so um, we've created uh, a, a team that we refer to them as member engagement but they organize uh, all across the country every month, arguably every week, um, opportunities to get members together with their friends and family to tell the story, member to member or, or peer to peer with the idea that, that um, they would be telling their, uh, their friends a, a story about what happened when we rebuilt their house, a story what happened when they saved money, a story what happened when they got great advice and service. Um, and last year we had about 3,000 of these interactions. Um, this year we'll have a lot more. Um, you know, insurance has been a low interest category where people wouldn't stop and say, boy, I really think I'm going to engage with my insurance company today. Right. Um, and yet they're willing to and even excited about doing it. And I think that that's where we've embraced what seemed like a difficult uh, journey to make this a, a subject that you want to talk about or spend time thinking about or 
um, hang out with. And, and, um, and so that's been really, really critical to our growth. All right. So let's jump into my, my favorite questions. So you started at Chubb right out of college. Is that right? Is, is that what you were expecting to do? What did you study in college and what did you think you would be doing for a living? So I, I went to Trinity College um, in Hartford uh, in a classic Northeast liberal arts college and studied economics mm-hmm. along with uh, art history and voodoo, witchcraft, and magic or whatever you do mm-hmm. at a liberal arts school. And um, so I was in Hartford, Connecticut, and uh, businesses came to campus. And um, there were a lot of them in Hartford. I grew, grew up in Boston. And, um, um, but uh, Chubb was offering me a job in New York. And, um, you know, for, for a Boston kid who'd never spent time in New York, that feel that seemed like a really neat idea at the time. And so I knew nothing about what they were doing. It's just that that job was in New York. And so I, I accepted that job, um, not particularly uh, well-informed. Um, and, uh, but I was going to share a house in Brooklyn with uh, some buddies from school, and it was, it was, it was great. Um, and I ended up really enjoying it. And so, um, you know, even if it was somewhat accidental, um, you know, I've, I haven't done anything else even outside of our little niche for, for 29 years. So who were your early mentors? Um, you know, I think back to, um, you know, I had, I had a, uh, uh, a childhood as a caddy was sort of one of my greatest experiences just, just. As a young kid, going off and and uh, getting up bright and early and and looping, and um, and I got uh, hooked up, uh, you know, as a um, as a really young kid with some young guys who were who turned out to become extraordinarily successful. But at the time, they were they were young guys. One was a young accountant who uh, who ended up becoming the CFO of a very very big company, um, and. Uh, um, I watched everything they did. I, you know, I, I sort of uh, really aspired to be like them. The, the way they treated, you know, a knucklehead kid carrying their bags. Um, thought, boy, those guys are just are just great. Um, so I think probably besides uh, the the uh, the natural thing of, of watching your parents uh, very closely, mm-hmm. um, I probably learned more carrying golf bags than uh, than a lot of other things in early, early in my life. That that is intriguing. What. What about Hank Greenberg? You had you had some good things to say about him. Uh, how did he mentor you along? Well, you know, I, I you know, I, I don't know if, if uh, it was as much mentoring. I think that to everybody who worked there, he created a great role model. You watched the way he he um, led. Um, you know, I, I, I enjoy it. I was joking with with somebody. You know, he, he uh, I every year I share the annual report with him, and he's usually kind to write back a, a quick note and. And uh, often with questions, and I think you know we all still respond to him as if he's the boss, you know, uh, right. even even uh, more than a decade later. Um, so he was great, and 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 he was a great teacher, um, and and uh, but but I think also you realize that he's he, he you don't you don't you don't go and say I want to be Hank Greenberg. I mean that is a really unique um, you know man who who's accomplished you know so so, so much. So. Um, I, I clearly learned a lot, but but uh, uh, and have, have just deep respect for him. So you mentioned you pattern pure more on some of the wealth management firms than than on insurance firms. Any particular investors uh, influence your your attitude or your approach? Who who stands out to you? Well, you talked about you know Vanguard and and you know and sort of thinking about you know the the, the Bogle view of of, mm-hmm. of the world is certainly. Uh, 
hard to argue with a lot of times. But but um, you know, I, I I take great pride in being an operator of a business much better than an investor, and so I look for help from people who uh, who share the values of an alignment of interest uh, rather than me thinking I'm clever enough to uh, to do it myself. Any other names you want to mention or other businesses that stand out? Well, I, I really think there's a there's a, a a a broad number of them these days who who fully embrace. Uh, you know, there might have been you know 15 years ago, you might talk about um, a small number of people who embrace this idea of an alignment of interest, and I think uh, you know today it's become much more commonplace and 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 almost table stakes if you want to be good in that business. So. Um, I think that's a great sign for for uh, for wealthy families, but also for those serving those that 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 um, it's become so established that conflicts should be avoided. Uh, transparency. It's, it, it's no longer out there on the fringe. It's becoming more and more mainstream. Yeah. E- even if if a lot of people fought it tooth and nail on the way in. Uh, let's talk about books. What what are some of your your favorite books, be it fiction or nonfiction? Well, I, I, I find, um, you know, when the, the company has gone from, from you know, 20 people 10 years ago to over 500 people today that I feel like I read about culture and environment and organizations more than anything. So Simon Sinek's um, point of view, uh, both first starting with, with purpose, but then some of his more, you know, uh, Leaders Eat Last, the, the most recent uh, mm-hmm. book. Um you know, I I, I enjoy um, uh, Stephen Levitt and the Freakonomics uh, sure. guys, and I and I think about you know the the um, uh, the appraisal de- de- dilemma that you described, right? The 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 idea that that someone went out to your house and increased the value by five hundred thousand dollars. Stephen Levitt would look at that very simply, and he would he would say that that one day an appraiser got yelled at because a house burned down. And and they didn't have enough coverage, and so the incentives are: I don't ever want to be uh, the guy who gets yelled at because there wasn't enough coverage, so I'm going to increase it even more. Um, you know, and and so I find that there's there's hardly a day goes by that I don't think about the principles that that he writes about and 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 speaks about um, in in business and in life. In- incentives matter, in other words. Yeah. Um- so what else has changed since you joined the industry? You, you've been doing this, you said, for 30 years. What, what do you see as the big secular shifts that are taking place? Well, data and technology is probably, you know, hard to understate. Um, think about it. I mean, I, you know, I, um, 1987 doesn't feel like it was that long ago. It's, this is not, you know, some old story where we picture, you know, the old New York and, you know, um, but yet, when you when you see pictures of that era, those computers look like they're dinosaurs. Right. Well, and 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 uh, you know we we would send things off to the uh, to the typing pool. I was trying to describe to my uh, to my daughter the other day about how I'd get an idea for a memo and I'd scribble it down and I'd mail it to a typing pool who would then type it and then send it back and it, you know it was it was uh, crazy. But but um, what we really had back then was uh, runners. So if a insurance broker wanted an underwriter to look at, at at a piece of business, they would give it to a young guy who would get on his bike and he'd go there and he'd sit at your desk and he was told not to leave until you gave an answer. Um, <laughs> I mean, today, I guess that would be an email or a text or something, or they'd right. Snapchat me or something. Right. And and and, uh, and so just the way information flowed, it, it was crazy to think 
Um, that Get it, on your that, bike and dr- go downtown and, and, and don't come back till you have an answer. And that was thought of as absolutely, you know, common. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so the pace in which information flows. And I even think today about how I made decisions at that point in time. So they would present me with a risk and I'd make a decision. Today, I can get dozens and dozens of sources of third-party data will come in. Someone will have helped me score that risk and I'll be able right. to go make a, a precise decision and back then, I would look and I'd say, you know, looks good to me or or doesn't look good to me. I mean, it it, it so data technology, the way we communicate, um, I, it's a bit obvious, but but it wasn't that long ago that I mean, I remember when we had our first fax machine installed, and we had to figure out what the skinny little paper was all about and stuff. You know, so what are if those are the recent shifts? What do you see as the next major shift that's going to come along to royal the industry? Well, I, I'm not sure how much you know roiling, but but um, you know I, I I do think that the insurance has been this category that that um, is a little bit more low interest, hasn't been the thing that that um, uh, everybody focuses on, and as a result, there is either is less information out there or the perception that the information is not out there, and so. Um, it, it, it's been a bit of buyer beware. I mm-hmm. don't know. Um, I don't know whether I'm making the right choice. I don't know why my, my home went up $500,000, whatever else. It is. And I think there is, and like there has been in just about every other industry, this shift where it will move more to seller beware and that the consumers will eventually have all the information in their hands or on their phones, or in some way they will be able to get a more accurate view of what it costs to replace their house or a more accurate view about what competitive rates are out there or a more detailed comparison of coverages. Um, and from our standpoint, as somebody who thinks that transparency is great, we would love if this moved even faster. Um, but I think it'll be a pretty big shock to the industry when consumers start being more informed. That that information asymmetry starts to become more symmetrical and it's no longer hey, we have all, all the knowledge and the buyer has nothing. <clears throat> there, there, you know, one of our competitors actually has a video. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's um, well, it, 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 it's true. So otherwise it would be just, it, you'd think it was done from the onion. And it, and it, and it says, um, uh, if you were buying a flat screen TV, you probably are smart enough to figure out what to do and where to go and how to do it. But insurance, you couldn't do that. So why don't you just go to the guy that we pay money to make sure he... You know, rep, rec, recommends my company, and 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 that's the best way to to, to go about doing it. Um, you know, and it and just gets right at the heart of this issue. You know, we're talking about some of the smartest, most successful people that we're trying to serve. Um, and there's been a view that either you're unable to understand it, or you don't want to understand it because you're too busy to worry about insurance. So just let it continue to be a black box to you. Um, I think more transparency in this this information shift. Um, will have a, a a profound impact on on the industry. And we're down to our last two questions. Um, if a millennial or someone who just graduated college came to you and said, "Hey, I'm thinking about a career in the insurance business," what sort of advice would you give them? Well, I, first of all, I think it's a great business. I I I, I welcomed these 47 kids the, on Monday, and 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 you know, among other things, shared with them. Um, you know the great the great challenge that is this business. You're trying to uh, understand risk. You're trying to anticipate what could happen. It's it's a complicated business, and so intellectually, it's fun to to take on challenges like how much should you charge for for hail insurance in Oklahoma. I mean, it's a 
Um, but 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 my my advice to them largely centers around purpose. That 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 I think that young people uh, have it right when they want to be part of something that's greater than simply trying to reward shareholders. And um, and we by no means are the only purpose driven company in the world, let alone the only purpose driven company in the insurance industry. Um, but if you combine the good, important work of insurance, the social service that we provide, um, you know, and and the intellectual challenge of the business, um, you know, but but I tend to emphasize the purpose to them more because I know that they're right to go to work knowing they're doing something that's important that makes a difference. Um, and when I see the impact uh, that we have when we help people rebuild after Sandy or, you know, heaven forbid, if these California fires do uh, move in the wrong direction for our membership, um, there's no doubt that what we're doing is important. And I think young people really appreciate that. And our final question, what is it that you know today about investing you wish you knew, or I'm sorry, I'm going to redo that question. I asked it wrong. Our final question, what is it that you know about insurance and risk management that you wish you knew 30 years ago when you started? Yeah, um, you know, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, 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 I do think I go back to, to, uh, to, to Hank's advice about, um, you know, don't be afraid to take risks um, that, that, you know, um, you know, I, I, I think probably having started a couple of companies from scratch, it's it's not as if um, you know I'm uh, uh, afraid of risk, um, but I but I naturally am not a risk taker, and 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 and, and uh, I think if I wish from the from day one I had a little more courage on on stuff, I I, I may have done even even uh, grander things, but I'm certainly proud of where, where we've been. Ross, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. This was really um, fascinating. It's it's a part of the financial world that I think a lot of people don't know about, and I feel like I know a little more than I did uh, before we started the conversation. Um, for those of you listening at home, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see any of the other 97 or so uh, podcasts that we've done in the past. Uh, I would be, again, remiss if I did not thank uh, Charlie Vollmer, our engineer, uh, Taylor Riggs, our booker, Mike Batnick, our uh, researcher, for helping to put this together. Our our engineer today is uh, Mark Zaniscalci. Uh You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.